The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, would you now bring us to your word for the sake of growing us and maturing us this morning for a deeper, wider, longer joy in you. Would you meet us and would you help us? Make what is uh, the word of the day Make it the experience of the day and of the week and of the month and of our lives. Help us to be a people who walk in joy in you. That would be of great honor to you as you're the source of our joy and it would be the life we want. So help us this morning. Teach us and build us up and honor your name. Do good to your people here today. By your spirit we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Joy to the world. I said it this morning several times, a very common sentiment this time of year, written on Christmas decorations, Christmas cards, sung in our songs. It's everywhere. And we do really want it to be written in our hearts, to be our experience, not just out there, but in here. Because, of course, joy is enjoyable, as I pray, to be the life that we want. We all want to walk through life in joy. It's a pleasurable, happy state, but it's one that for most of the world is sort of fleeting. Joyfulness in the world comes and goes, if if one of us, I think this is all of our experience, it comes and it goes as our circumstances change it can be hard to hold on to joy. That's exactly what we're going to consider this morning on this third Sunday of Advent. Advent is the period leading up to Christmas that's designed to help the church look forward to and to remember what it is that God has done, what he's given us. And today we consider how God has made it possible for people to experience abiding joy here in this very real world. And we'll do that this morning by means of a pretty unusual Christmas time text. This is a familiar passage for many of us, but it's not often connected to Christmas because, frankly, the whole book of Habakkuk, there are different ways to pronounce his name, I, I, I pronounce it Habakkuk, the whole book of Habakkuk sits in one large context of misery, suffering, and fear, which is not what we associate with Christmas often. They seem not to fit. But I think that's exactly why Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet here, can actually be helpful to us this morning because he finds, by the end of this book, he finds and and rests in joy in a most surprising situation, a most unexpected situation. He lives in a land where injustice and exploitation Violence is how he describes it at the beginning of the book. Where unjust, exploitative violence is the norm. 
done against the helpless and the vulnerable by those who should know better and should do otherwise, the leaders, the rulers of Israel itself. And he and, and others are suffering under that, and so he cries out to God, asking for some sort of help, some sort of deliverance. Surely the God of justice and righteousness and peace will intervene to put a stop to this. And God answers, but his answer seems worse. God's answer is to bring judgment against wicked leadership, a sinful nation. He's going to bring judgment against it and bring a ruthless foreign power to attack and conquer the land. Injustice and exploitation and violence are going to get worse as the Chaldeans, people from Babylon, as the Chaldeans come to conquer God's judgment against wickedness in the land. And Habakkuk and others are going to continue to suffer and suffer more. This certainly seems like a case of the cure being worse than disease. But as Habakkuk continues to engage with God and think about this and pray, God meets him. And God teaches him some things, and God shows him some things. All of which, when we put them together, lead him, and even more so us this morning on, this, on the other side of that first Christmas, led him and can lead us to experience real joy that lasts. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read the passage. This is the very end of the book, verse 16 through 19. Habakkuk chapter 3. He says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. That's the end of the book. I make two observations. Here's the first. Patient trust of God's ways and timing comes from encountering the living God. Patient trust of God's ways and timing comes from encountering the living God. In the passage, Habakkuk is facing all kinds of trouble and begins to pray, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and he asks God to intervene, to have mercy on them, to relent and stop the discipline of his people the, that's coming from these invaders. And God's answer essentially is, not right now, but eventually. I will eventually, but not now. And when I do, it's going to be pretty different than what you're thinking. It's going to be bigger and wider and greater than you can imagine. And, and my point right here at, at this moment is how Habakkuk takes that answer. End of verse 16. I will wait quietly 
for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I want that right now. That's what I asked for. For you to bring the day of trouble against them, to, to defeat them, to, to put them out. I, I don't want to wait for that. I'm frankly not sure that I can wait for that. It is really hard. We are, we are in a bad place. It is crushingly difficult. But I will wait, and I will trust you to deal with them in time according to your plan when you see fit in your way. I will wait, and I will wait quietly for that. Which doesn't mean that he, that he won't speak. It means that he won't grumble or complain, that he will be patient and appropriately submissive beneath God. Meek, not demanding and not pushy and not mopey and not, not whining and, and not perpetually upset or negative about it, not ruled by fear or anxiety. I will wait quietly. I will trust patiently. You, your ways, your timing to do what I think needs to happen, but which you, Lord, apparently don't think needs to happen yet. Or don't think needs to happen like I think it needs to happen. Here's my life, open-handed in front of you. I put it there, and I sit down like a child in your lap, patiently, quietly. I'll trust you. We need that posture before God. In the midst of all the lives that we lead, our lives in our hands, they are our lives, they are in our hands, we have to live them, but open-handed before God, we always need to be like this, patient and trusting, dependent on him, not directive of him. To be otherwise is to sin. So we need to be, we must be characterized by that kind of patient trust, to wait upon him to do what he will do, when he will do it, how he will do it. To not grow impatient or grumbling, it, that's, that's always the case, of course. But I want to narrow that always the case to this particular situation. We're talking about joy this morning, and, and we see this is where it goes. The passage gets there. This is before we get there. We're thinking on the path to joy. It's particularly important that we sit here like this as we think about Living lives of joy. Because it's pretty hard to live joyful if your ways and your plans and your desires and your timetable and your agenda is dominant in your heart and thwarted. You see the scenario here. When you need a certain job now, and I mean it like this. When you need that now, and it doesn't come, a whole bunch of other things, a whole bunch of other emotions, a whole bunch of other responses rush into you, like frustration and anger and fear and uncertainty and resentment, but not joy. When I must have a spouse, now I'm so lonely or the spouse I have, must respond to me kindly and graciously and appropriately and respectfully like he or she is supposed to. That must happen, and it doesn't. A whole bunch of stuff rushes in, anger and fear and resentment, yes, all those things, but not joy. 
when we pursue life like this, what I think I must have when I must have it, and it does not come. Joy does not come. So when, when we're thinking through the, the issue of quietly trust patient, sit before the Lord like this. That, that's important in all of life, but, but this morning we talk about joy. It's, it's an especially critical component for how do I live life joyfully? You can't live life joyfully before the Lord like this. It's not possible. The things and the plans that, that I want and that I need, it, and I am certainly not saying that we shouldn't have any plans, desires, hopes. And certainly the, the Bible invites us repeatedly, come to the Lord and ask for these things. And even ask him earnestly. Ask him and ask him again and ask him again. Persist and, and think and plan, certainly. But we bring that all it must be like this. And the attitude that we bring it with must be, here, Lord, but not my will, yours be done. Here, Lord, but not my timing, yours be done. We must hold them open-handed before God in patient trust. To not do so is self-destructive. There's no way to know joy in that situation. And it is sin. We try to tell God what to do. Have you ever, ever known somebody like that or, or are you somebody like that? Who says, I went to the Lord and I, I laid something in front of him and, and it never happened. And if that's how God is, then who needs him? We see, we see there the attitude of, I'm, I'm actually the one in charge. And if God won't do my bidding, then I'm going to find another God that will recognize me as the authority. Watch that. Watch that. That sets us cross purposes. That sets us against God. It is sin, and it is certainly self-destructive because there's no way to make God do what you want, and there's no way to know joy in the trying of it. Here, Lord, patiently, I trust you. We, we need to get to that place where Habakkuk is at the end of verse 16. I will quietly wait for you to do what I need, but how you want it, when you want it, and what you actually think it is that I need. I trust you. Here's my life. And the important point for us here this morning is how did he get there? How did he get there? He got there by encountering the living God in an intimate and personal, real way. Intimate and personal, real way, which is why I say the living God, the God who, who is real, who is alive, who lives, not, not the God of theory or the God of philosophy or the God of theology or the God of a textbook, but, but the God who is, who is personal, who is real, who can be encountered, the living God. Verse 16 begins with, I hear. 
that ends with where he is, yeah, I will patiently and quietly wait. But it begins with, I hear. What does he hear? Well, whatever it is, it is alarming and deeply, profoundly moving. You see, there are four lines that are, are ways of attempting to describe what is involuntary, physical, undone. He's not making himself tremble. He's trembling. You ever been in a situation where you have been completely flustered, just kind of out of control. It, it, it is uncomfortable. And it is involuntary. You don't like think up, I will act this way. Something has appeared to him that has caused him to come unglued here for a moment. And what is it? Well, it's what comes right before in chapter 3. If you were to glance back at the whole preceding 15 verses of chapter 3, you'd see this is his prayer in which he begins by asking the Lord, will you please come and have mercy? Will you you act? Will Will you intervene? And then God answers with a vision that is a collage of of colorful and alarming and powerful images, all connected to various ways that God has come in the past to deliver his people. They are all a depiction of, of the Almighty God coming in intense wrath to crush evil. I recognize we're talking about joy this morning. I recognize this is the Christmas season. So follow me on how we walk into intense wrath to crush evil to come back around to Christmas and joy. It's, I, I know it seems ironic and it's important. God Almighty comes in intense wrath to crush all evil. And if you look back, you see the imagery. The earth itself responds to this. Mountains collapse and shake, and the waters rage as the Lord rushes to the attack on his chariot of salvation. That's the imagery there. Evil nations, like those that are oppressing Habakkuk, that he's crying out against, that he's suffering under. Evil nations. They're crushed by the Lord who comes to march through the earth in fury to deal with them in anger to save his people. Those those are the words that are used, fury and wrath and anger. Verse 13 is particularly graphic. Habakkuk sees the Lord marching forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. The image is of, of, a, of a dead enemy stripped naked on the battlefield so all the valuables taken so that the beasts can eat the dead bodies. Graphic. That's what he did to the head of the house of the wicked as he saved his people, as he saved his anointed. In verse 14, the warriors who served the evil one, who were, who were the house of the wicked, who swooped in, you see at the end of the verse, rejoicing as they in glee devour the poor. These are, they're, they're devouring Habakkuk and the poor of the land. Those warriors, he killed them too with their own arrows in the head. Graphic. 
and you trampled the sea, verse 15. In the Old Testament, often the sea is, is, is a metaphor for evil and chaos, and that's because when ancient peoples encountered the sea, they went out and they never came back. Subject to storms and the vastness and, and getting lost out there. So the sea was chaotic, it was trouble, it was untamable, it was evil, and God runs it down. He trampled it with his horses. Obviously, it's a metaphor because you can't trample the sea with horses. He's, he's depicting evil run down by God. That's what he hears. And at the heart of all that is not the events. At the heart of all of it is the Lord Almighty, the living God, where it starts coming forth in bright glory, in vast power to answer the big question. The little question was, Lord, can you help us out here in this place as we struggle with these people? And he says, no, not yet. And when I come, I'm going to answer the big question. I'm going to wipe out evil. Period. Not your little question. The big one. This is the God who will descend on all the earth in glory and in might and in anger against evil and will wipe it out in power. you got to feel that. Because he sees that in living color and just is unglued by it. Unglued by him. It is all about him and him and he and you. It's about the Lord. Habakkuk, perhaps like us, may be too accustomed to, to familiarity with, with the God who's described here with the God that we think about and know, and he sees here something, oh my word, oh my word, the Lord, oh my word, you got to feel that. Habakkuk prays for mercy that he thinks he needs when he thinks he needs it. And instead he meets the living God in splendor and in majesty, bent on destroying evil. And that's where patient trust comes from. An encounter with that God. And that's where it comes from for us, too. Because it's in such an encounter that God draws near, that God reveals himself and does a work inside of us that changes how we're seeing everything. We are most accustomed to thinking of the world from the perspective of my chair, with me at the center. And if God were to show himself like that, I move out of the center, 
my, my chair moves out of the center and his throne rises up and I see things differently. If this kind of a God would show up in our hearts and minds, he fills up all the space. He takes up all the air in the room. He fills all, the whole windshield, not just a piece of it, everything. He's what we see. That kind of an encounter with this kind of a God shows us the world differently and shows our, our own issues and our own problems, real as they are, it shows them to us differently. An encounter with God changes our perspective. That's what we need. And in a very real way, in a very real way, we who are Christians, this side of Christmas and this side of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, in a real way, we are in a much better position to encounter the real living God than even an Old Testament prophet like Habakkuk was. God has come near, and for you, Christian, God has come to dwell within you in a vibrant, living, real way. And can, as we, talk, as we looked at last week, can come to dwell down even more deeply within you, as can, can in a real way grip you and hold you and own you, can dwell down deeply inside of you. The person of God, spiritually, truly, really, and increasingly can own you an encounter with God is a great privilege that God bought for you. It's what he intended to do for you when he sent Christ and sent Christ to the cross, not just to remove sin off of you, but to remove sin off of you so that he could unite you to himself to dwell with you so that you could live moment by moment in encounter I-N-E-N, counter, in encounter with God. So you could see him, not only in his fury against evil, but in every facet of his splendid nature and character. You can see him and know him and know him increasingly. This is the privilege that God bought for us. And this is what we need if we're going to be a people who sit in front of God like this. You see, you can't sit in front of a, of a being with your hands open, with your, your life surrendered to him if he's eh, moderately powerful and somewhat wise, above average in graciousness and fairly loving. None of us would officially tack on those adjectives. They creep in, though. We need to see a God who is omni, every one of those. Omni, 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 everything, all, total, complete, full. And for that, he's given us the spirit to say, behold your God, Christian, behold your God, behold your God, behold your God. Walk with me and see. And as we walk with him and see, then this seems reasonable and right, appropriate and good. Sweet. That's where life is. And to take it back is not only sin, it is self-destructive and folly. Because I don't know everything, and I can't be all. and I haven't seen everything, but you have, Lord, and you are for me. Here. 
We need this encounter with God if we're going to put our lives in front of him. And if you're not a Christian, it's what you need. An encounter with this God. Lord, show me yourself. Christian, same thing. Lord, show me yourself. He's the one that we're after when we come to the Bible. He's the one that we're after when we come to prayer. He's the one that we're after when we set our minds on things above. Where Christ is, we're after an encounter with the living God now. I think there was a slide on the, on the screen. Something like what we need is a, is a real Savior right, in it, right here, right now. Powell's in court, I think. Anybody see that this morning? True. Amen. Maybe what you might find helpful in approaching that is to take this in your life and pull it in front of you and look at it. What am I tight-fisted holding on to? Lord, with your other hand, Lord, what of you do I need to see if I was going to put this in front of you? To trust this to you. What, what have you do? I need? Help me. Show me. To talk to him specifically about the stuff that you're holding on to. I think I need this. I fear this. I, I desperately want this. I long for this. I, I believe, but I'm not sure what I'm wrong on, so would you help me? Show me yourself in relation to what I'm holding on to. Open my fingers. Ask him to meet you himself in a way that persuades you to patiently trust him. Ask you to show you his glory. I find the Psalms pretty helpful for that. Because the Psalms are, are a lot about getting my heart before him, and they lace in there why. Your steadfast love is better than life. So I can think, Lord, would you show me your steadfast love? Would you show me that it's better than life, that it's better than what I'm holding on to? Show me, cause me by your spirit to behold you in all of your vast splendor, your steadfast love. The Psalms are helpful for me for that. Maybe that's a way you take God and bring him to what you're holding on to. But such patient faith is necessary for us. It comes from encountering the living God. We have to be there if we're going to get to the second point. Resilient joy. Resilient joy is rooted in the God who saves in Christ. Resilient joy is rooted in the God who saves in Christ. And I say resilient joy because what I'm intending to get at here is, is a joy that is strong, that endures through hardships, because as we'll see, that's very much what's emphasized here in the passage, in these verses. It's the second I will. I will quietly wait. I will rejoice in the Lord. And so what he's saying here is, 
this is where I am at the end of this vision. I am in a place right now where I will quietly wait, and I'm in a place right now where I rejoice in the Lord. And then he's talking about when hardship comes, that's not going to stop the joy. So to make this all simple here, the Christian life is a life of rejoicing before the Lord, and it's not stopped by hardship. We touched on this a little bit a couple weeks ago when we talked about thanksgiving, giving thanks. He's the God who is for us and for his people, so we encounter him and we experience his generous grace in all kinds of things in life. He gives us food. He, he gives us food that tastes good. He gives us the ability to partake of it. And so we should receive that and enjoy it as a good gift. So there's, there's much to be enjoyed in the world that has nothing to do with hardship. It's just the goodness of God. Enjoy it. So I say that almost as an aside here because I don't want to present joy as always kind of like the lemonade from the lemons. Joy in life is a gift from God with all of his good gifts. But our focus on resilient joy this morning is because of what the passage is and because that's often one of our challenges. Yeah, sure, he gives food to enjoy. It tastes good. We can partake of it. Yes, but what about when there isn't any food and we can't partake of it? Then I guess, right, the joy evaporates? If the joy is tied to the good gift of the food, then there's no food, there's no joy, right? No. The situation in verse 17 is an agrarian society's nightmare. It's a catastrophe. No food anywhere of any sort, and you don't bounce back from this because there's nothing to replant or reproduce. It's the end. It's really hard for us to get, to get our, our minds around this because there's always another supermarket somewhere. But what if all the supermarkets in all the land are empty and there aren't any trucks coming from Magic Land to fill them up? That's where they are. And certainly it's presented in hyperbole because all and every... It, hard to get to that place, but he's imagining this is the worst case scenario, which as I look around at these invaders who are pillaging through the land and are going to be here for a while, this, something like this could be. And if it is, and if we starve to death, because there's no food to be found, I'm not talking about not much food, I mean no food, and we starve to death, though God determines that that is what happens now, still yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Not I will rejoice because I prayed and he stopped that from happening. 
Even if that happens, as it happens, when it happens, I will rejoice. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, even when his plan and his timing doesn't save me from starvation. Doesn't save my children from starvation. Doesn't save my spouse from starvation. How does that make any sense? It's not just hard to imagine doing, it seems a little bit like a contradiction. The God of my salvation who didn't save me. It's a contradiction. The God of my salvation who let me watch my loved ones starve to death. In him I will rejoice. If, if we were actually in that situation, somebody would understandably say, seething, what a farce and what lunatic wrote this garbage. I, I censored out all the swear words. Right? I'm supposed to somehow find my heart joyful as I think about God and watch my child starve to death. That's how we often feel. When we look at verse 17 or when we hear verse 17 type bad news ourselves from the doctor, from the employer, from the police officer at night, Pause right there and fill in your own blank. What is it or what do you fear it would be that is verse 17 like bad news for you? What, what's your catastrophe? For a moment here, allow yourself to think about that. What's your catastrophe? Do you have it? Seriously, do you have it? What's your catastrophe? Now, that is why we come to verse 17 after verse 16, patient trust, which is after an encounter with the living God. The living God who saves not in every way we wish, not always at the time we hope for, he may not stop that catastrophe. And whatever that catastrophe is, it is big and it is front and center. If you imagine it, if you imagine it for a second and you let it come out of your back pocket or out of the back seat or out of the trunk and you bring it up here, it is alarming. And the only thing that can rival that is alarmingly large vision of God. The only way you put your catastrophe in your open hand in front of God is if God is huge and good and for you. We all pick a place where we stand in life to look around. And if you pick 
the spot right here in your middle of your catastrophe and you look around, you'll say, evil and dark and the God who allowed it or the God who did it is evil and dark. But if you pick the spot over here in the God who is grand and big and marvelous and has shown himself to you in Christ and you look at the catastrophe from that angle, then you can see it differently. You can see it from a perspective where this Lord fills your vision and that seems like light and momentary affliction. What? Yes, that's what Paul said. By comparison. Not light and momentary in itself, but by comparison. Compared to the eternal weight of glory that that one brings for you. In the fullest real sense, he is the saving deliverer that we need. The God who in proper time does burst forth for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed. This is the bottom, this is the foundation on which we have to stand when the catastrophe looks real, big, and heartbreaking. Look look again at verse 13. The word there, anointed, makes us think of something, right? Now surely it's it's a repeated way in, in the text, it's a repeated way of restating the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed, He's gathered all the people and put them in a singular there. But when we talk about anointed, the root word of which is related to Messiah, it makes us think of things. And when we see this crushing of the head of the house of the wicked, who is a person laying him bare, makes us think of things. When we look at at a passage like this and see that the salvation of his people occurs at the time that the, the anointed is saved and the head of the house of the wicked is crushed and his warriors then destroyed. From this side of Christmas and from this side of the cross, this language all becomes hard to think about without thinking about Messiah, Jesus whom God saved from death and from the grave, and as he did so, he saved his people and crushed the head of the evil one. The long ago made promise. Fulfilled. He destroyed wickedness forever. He put death to death, as an ancient Puritan once said. He is our Savior in Christ There's no two ways around that. And so it is wrong, it is not accurate to point at our catastrophe, at our starvation, and to feel abandoned and to look at the verse 17 type terrible news that here is, the world is full of it. The world is full of it. If if you live long enough, you suffer and then you die, right? The world is full of it. And, and it's, in, it's incorrect then to, to stand over here and say something's wrong because evil is. It's, it's actually proper. Why is it proper? Well, fundamentally because of the cross and the tomb. The cross was. The tomb is empty. So it's proper to stand here and look that way and say, this has an answer. This is wrong, and it has an answer. God in Christ has answered it. So he is my Savior. That's true. 
It's, it's not proper to feel abandoned, to feel that God is not the God of my salvation. He is in Christ. Have you not stood in verse 16 and seen this, so to speak? But our, our problem comes not, not understanding what I'm talking about here. If you're a Christian, you get that. You understand that. Our problem in life, and this is always the problem when joy in God is fleeting, our problem in life is where we're standing and what's most important to us. We have forgotten or overlooked or never heard or never encountered the living God. And so what is in life is most important to us, most gripping to us. The circumstance from which we judge everything else, everyone else. We have forgotten or overlooked the living God. So you have to, Christian, you have to take your catastrophe and you have to bring that to God and say, here, even this, Lord, I put this in front of you. Would you show me yourself? That's where this all starts. I have to see you, really see you, not see truth about you, see you. I have to encounter the living God, not just the truth about the living God. I need to encounter you, so show yourself to me because this is overwhelming. This is highly threatening. This is very painful and frightening. And God wants to meet you like that. That's why he came to dwell inside of you because he wants to commune with you. He wants to. We're meant to know him and to know this resilient joy that's rooted in him even amidst sorrow and suffering and countless other troubles and hardships. To sorrow but ever rejoice in the God of our salvation because this God and that salvation, his final answer to our deepest problem, sin and evil, his final answer to that is what has become gripping, dominant in our thinking and in our seeing. He wants us to see him and then to see joy in him and more than that, to conquer in him. Verse 19 briefly takes us to a remarkable place because this isn't just what, what we see here is that verse 18 is not just a hanging on by a thread rejoicing. 17 and 18 are remarkable. That, that dynamic is remarkable. But then 19 says, and more than just surviving, I'm going to thrive and conquer. He wants us not just to endure under the catastrophe, but to conquer through it. The image there is of a nimble, sure-footed deer climbing up on the heights. But see, the image is clear enough, but God is my strength and makes me like that. Well, but to tread on my high places, the Bacchic probably means something more than just like a hill. High places is kind of code throughout the Old Testament for places of idolatry. Gods were thought to dwell in high places because they could like rule the land from on high. And so there were countless shrines offered in high places on hills and mountains. And what it seems that he's saying here is that 
I don't just like climb up and excel, but I actually conquer that which would threaten to pull me away from God, an idol. God, my strength, helps me to conquer, to spiritually defeat that which spiritually threatens and attacks and wants to drag me away from patiently trusting in the Lord and rejoicing in him. So here then is joy amidst hardship, and here then is victory. A Christian life that is rejoicing in all things and that is actually thriving and advancing in all things, not just hanging on. Joy amidst all the worst dangers and hardships, it really is possible if your joy is not rooted in the circumstance that just shriveled up when the crops died, but rooted in the God who is grand, who has acted to defeat evil and will act to finally fully defeat evil, to run it down and eliminate it completely. The God who has saved you in Christ and will come again to save you fully and completely. Our joy is in the living God with whom we are in vital communion. And our eyes are set on his coming again, hoping in that. That is good news. That's where joy in the world is found. Not to the exclusion of all the sweet and good things of which there are many, but and in the midst of the hard things of which there also are many. Christ was sent to become a man of sorrows in your place, abandoned for a moment to the one who was evil, who crushed him and killed him. But he became a man of sorrow so that you could become people of joy. Really. Really. This is the gift of Christmas. And, and from where I'm standing, it, it's, much, it's much more substantive and much more helpful. I, I, en, I enjoy, I certainly enjoy the good things about Christmas. The things of uh, the, the tree with the lights and the atmosphere in our house and the food and the fellowship with different people. I, I enjoy all that. But I also, I think others too, I also wonder, but what about when it's gone? Well, here's the answer. What, what about when it's gone? I, I enjoy hanging out with my family, but what if they're dead? Really? Part of my catastrophe. The joy's gone? No. No. You'll sorrow in that, but ever rejoicing because this is the God who has pronounced joy to the world and made it real. He has, in fact, saved you. Patiently trust him to save you fully one day from even the presence of evil altogether. And in the meantime, rejoice in thankfulness. Let me pray. Father, would you produce in us deep joy, profound joy, 
not to the exclusion of, of the easier, sweeter joys, not to the exclusion of that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your many good gifts that we receive in abundance. But produce in us a deeper joy, the, the joy beneath that, the foundation on which we can stand when those things are hard to come by, hard to find, gone. Would you do a work supernaturally in your people here to open our eyes to behold you and to see the sweetness of your gift to us at Christmas? Christ who draws near and makes it possible for us to walk with you ever in encounter. Show yourself to us, Lord. Build us up for our good and for your glory, and for a lasting and abiding joy. Make us a people like that, please. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.